Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 2 He took nobody by surprise. There was nobody to take. All was quiet. Dennis wandered from room to empty room, looking with pleasure at the familiar pictures and furniture, at all the little untidy signs of life that lay scattered here and there. He was rather glad that they were all out. It was amusing to wander through the house as though one were exploring a dead, deserted Pompeii. What sort of life would the excavator reconstruct from these remains? How would he people these empty chambers? There was the long gallery with its rows of respectable and, though of course one couldn't publicly admit it, rather boring Italian primitives, its Chinese sculptures, its unobtrusive, dateless furniture. There was the panelled drawing-room, where the huge, chintz-covered armchair stood, oases of comfort among the austere, flesh-mortifying antiques. There was the morning-room, with its pale lemon walls, its painted Venetian chairs and rococo tables, its mirrors, its modern pictures. There was the library, cool, spacious and dark, book-lined from floor to ceiling, rich in portentous folios. There was the dining-room, solidly, port-winily English, with its great mahogany table, its eighteenth-century chairs and sideboard, its eighteenth-century pictures, family portraits, meticulous animal paintings. What could one reconstruct from such data? There was much of Henry Wimbush in the long gallery and the library, something of Anne, perhaps, in the morning-room. That was all. Among the accumulations of ten generations, the living had left but few traces. Lying on the table in the morning-room, he saw his own book of poems. What tact! He picked it up and opened it. It was what the reviewers call a slim volume. He read at hazard. But silence and the topless dark vault in the lights of Luna Park, and Blackpool from the nightly gloom hollows a bright tumultuous tomb. He put it down again, shook his head, and sighed. What genius I had then, he reflected, echoing the aged Swift. It was nearly six months since the book had been published. He was glad to think he would never write anything of the same sort again. Who could have been reading it, he wondered. Anne, perhaps, he liked to think so. Perhaps, too, she had at last recognised herself in the hamadryad of the poplar sapling, the slim hamadryad whose movements were like the swaying of a young tree in the wind. The woman who was a tree was what he had called the poem. He had given her the book when it came out, hoping that the poem would tell her what he hadn't dared to say. She had never referred to it. He shut his eyes and saw a vision of her in a red velvet cloak, swaying into the little restaurant where they sometimes dined together in London, three-quarters of an hour late, and he was at his table, haggard with anxiety, irritation, hunger. Oh, she was damnable! It occurred to him that perhaps his hostess might be in her boudoir. It was a possibility. He would go and see. Mrs. Wimbush's boudoir was in the central tower on the garden front, a little staircase corkscrewed up to it from the hall. Dennis mounted, tapped at the door. Come in. Ah, she was there. He had rather hoped she wouldn't be. He opened the door. Priscilla Wimbush was lying on the sofa, a blotting pad, rested on her knees, and she was thoughtfully sucking the end of a silver pencil. Hello, she said, looking up. I'd forgotten you were coming. Well, here I am, I'm afraid. 
said Dennis, deprecatingly. I'm awfully sorry. Mrs. Wimbush laughed. Her voice, her laughter, were deep and masculine. Everything about her was manly. She had a large, square, middle-aged face with a massive, projecting nose and little greenish eyes, the whole surmounted by a lofty and elaborate coiffure of a curiously improbable shade of orange. Looking at her, Dennis always thought of Wilkie Bard as the cantatrice. That's why I'm going to sing in opera, sing in opera, sing in opera. Today she was wearing a purple silk dress with a high collar and a row of pearls. The costume, so richly dowagerous, so suggestive of the royal family, made her look more than ever like something on the halls. "'What have you been doing all this time?' she asked. "'Well,' said Dennis, and he hesitated almost voluptuously. He had a tremendously amusing account of London and its doings all ripe and ready in his mind. It would be a pleasure to give it utterance. "'To begin with,' he said. But he was too late. Mrs. Wimbush's question had been what the grammarians call rhetorical. It asked for no answer. It was a little conversational flourish, a gambit in the polite game. "'You find me busy at my horoscopes,' she said, without even being aware that she had interrupted him. A little pained, Dennis decided to reserve his story for more receptive ears. He contented himself, by way of revenge, with saying, "'Oh!' rather icily. "'Did I tell you how I won four hundred on the Grand National this year?' "'Yes,' he replied, still frigid and monosyllabic. She must have told him at least six times. "'Wonderful, isn't it? Everything is in the stars. In the old days, before I had the stars to help me, I used to lose thousands. Now,' she paused an instant, "'well, look at that four hundred on the Grand National. That's the stars.' Dennis would have liked to hear more about the old days, but he was too discreet and, still more, too shy to ask. There had been something of a bust-up, that was all he knew. Old Priscilla, not so old then, of course, and sprightlier, had lost a great deal of money, dropped it in handfuls and hatfuls on every racecourse in the country. She had gambled, too. The number of thousands varied in the different legends, but all put it high. Henry Wimbush was forced to sell some of his primitives, a Tadeo da Pogibonzi, an Amico de Tadeo, and four or five nameless Sienese, to the Americans. There was a crisis. For the first time in his life, Henry asserted himself. And with good effect, it seemed. Priscilla's gay and gadding existence had come to an abrupt end. Nowadays she spent almost all her time at Crome, cultivating a rather ill-defined malady. For consolation she dallied with new thought and the occult. Her passion for racing still possessed her, and Henry, who was a kind-hearted fellow at bottom, allowed her forty pounds a month betting money. Most of Priscilla's days were spent in casting the horoscopes of horses, and she invested her money scientifically as the stars dictated. She betted on football, too, and had a large notebook in which she registered the horoscopes of all the players in all the teams of the league. The process of balancing the horoscopes of two elevens, one against the other, was a very delicate and difficult one. A match between the Spurs and the Villa entailed a conflict in the heavens so vast and so complicated that it was not to be wondered at if she sometimes made a mistake about the outcome. "'Such a pity you don't believe in these things, Dennis. "'Such a pity,' said Mrs. Wimbush, in her deep, distinct voice. "'I can't say I feel it so. "'Ah, that's because you don't know what it's like to have faith.' 
you've no idea how amusing and exciting life becomes when you do believe. All that happens means something. Nothing you do is ever insignificant. It makes life so jolly, you know. Here am I at Crome, dull as ditchwater, you'd think. But no, I don't find it so. I don't regret the old days a bit. I have the stars. She picked up the sheet of paper that was lying on the blotting pad. Inman's horoscope, she explained. I thought I'd like to have a little fling on the billiards championships this autumn. I have the infinite to keep in tune with. She waved her hand. And then there's the next world, and all the spirits, and one's aura, and Mrs. Eddy saying you're not ill, and the Christian mysteries, and Mrs. Bessant. It's all splendid. One's never dull for a moment. I can't think how I used to get on before, in the old days. Pleasure, running about, that's all it was, just running about. Lunch, tea, dinner, theatre, supper every day. It was fun, of course, while it lasted, but there wasn't much left of it afterwards. There's rather a good thing about that in Barbecue Smith's new book. Where is it? She sat up and reached for a book that was lying on the little table by the head of the sofa. Do you know him, by the way? she asked. Who? Mr. Barbecue Smith. Dennis knew of him vaguely. Barbecue Smith was a name in the Sunday papers. He wrote about the conduct of life. He might even be the author of What a Young Girl Ought to Know. No, not personally, he said. I've invited him for next weekend. She turned over the pages of the book. Here's the passage I was thinking of. I marked it. I always mark things I like. Holding the book almost at arm's length, for she was somewhat long-sighted, and making suitable gestures with her free hand, she began to read slowly, dramatically. What a thousand pound fur coats! What are quarter-million incomes! She looked up from the page with a histrionic movement of the head. Her orange coiffure nodded portentously. Dennis looked at it, fascinated. Was it the real thing, and henna? he wondered, or was it one of those complete transformations one sees in the advertisements? What are thrones and sceptres? The orange transformation, yes, it must be a transformation, bobbed up again. What are the gaieties of the rich, the splendours of the powerful? What is the pride of the great? What are the gaudy pleasures of high society? The voice, which had risen in tone questioningly from sentence to sentence, dropped suddenly and boomed reply. They are nothing. Vanity. Fluff. Dandelion seed in the wind. Thin vapours of fever. The things that matter happen in the heart. Seen things are sweet, but those unseen are a thousand times more significant. It is the unseen that counts in life. Mrs. Wimbush lowered the book. Beautiful, isn't it? she said. Dennis preferred not to hazard an opinion, but uttered a non-committal, Hmm. Ah, it's a fine book, this a beautiful book, said Priscilla, as she let the pages flick back one by one from under her thumb. And here's the passage about the lotus pool. He compares the soul to a lotus pool, you know. She held up the book again and read, A friend of mine has a lotus pool in his garden. It lies in a little dell, embowered with wild roses and eglantine among which the nightingale pours forth its amorous descant all the summer long. Within the pool the lotuses blossom, and the birds of the air come to drink and bathe themselves in its crystal waters. Ah, that reminds me, Priscilla exclaimed, shutting the book with a clap, and uttering her big profound laugh. That reminds me of the things that have been going on in our bathing pool since you were here last. 
We gave the village people leave to come and bathe here in the evenings. You've no idea of the things that happened. She leaned forward, speaking in a confidential whisper. Every now and then she uttered a deep gurgle of laughter. Mixed bathing. Saw them out of my window. Sent for a pair of field glasses to make sure. No doubt of it. The laughter broke out again. Dennis laughed too. Barbecue Smith was tossed on the floor. "'It's time we went to see if tea's ready,' said Priscilla. She hoisted herself up from the sofa and went swishing off across the room, striding beneath the trailing silk. Dennis followed her, faintly humming to himself. "'That's why I'm going to sing in opera, sing in opera, sing in opera.' And then the little twiddly bit of accompaniment at the end, rah-rah. End of chapter.